one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Welcome on board the Good Ship Talking Space. This is Talking Space number 320 for Thursday, May 12, 2011. My name's Gene McCulka. About two weeks ago, my colleague and I, Mark Ratterman, had the privilege of being among the press pool at NASA's Kennedy Space Center to cover the space transportation mission number 134, the final flight of Space Shuttle Endeavour. While there, we both had the honor of speaking with some very extraordinary people and seeing some very extraordinary things. This presentation is part two of what we learned, what we heard, and what we saw while at the Kennedy Space Center, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did bringing it to you. The first stop on our tour is a discussion of one of the experiments that will fly on STS-134, a new laser guidance system designed to guide the future Orion spacecraft for docking with the International Space Station. Called the Sensor Test for Orion Relative Navigation and Risk Mitigation, or STORM, it's a joint effort between NASA, Lockheed Martin, and Ball Aerospace. Space Shuttle Endeavour will test STORM while undocking with the International Space Station, then re-rendezvous with the space station while it mimics an Orion approach. The STORM system's goal is to make the process of rendezvous with the International Space Station easier and safer. It's an interesting moment in the history of the shuttle program, itself soon to be part of the past, leveraging a future laser guidance system to approach the International Space Station, what will most likely be the focus of human international space efforts for the next 10 years. The storm system demonstration opens up with Mr. Howard Hugh, manager of the Orion System Performance and Analysis Office at NASA's Johnson Space Flight Center. We're going to have an opportunity to have uh, several people from our team come up and talk a little bit more specifically about uh, the storm mission and the technology. But I wanted to kind of start with a little bit of background about STORM and uh, what we were using it for the Orion uh, program. So I uh, wanted to try to make sure, uh, give you guys a little background about what we're doing. Um, obviously, many of you know that, uh, including this mission, rendezvous and docking is a very, very important element for future uh, exploration programs. Uh, most, many vehicles that require the human or uncrewed. Uh, require uh, docking capability, and of course the heart of that docking capability is relative navigation sensors. Relative navigation sensors provide you a good understanding of where you are relative to where you want to go. So they're basically your eyes in a nutshell. And so this technology is uh, is very key to what we need uh, for the future of space flight in terms of rendezvous and docking. And what I want to make sure also to point out is that we... Uh, we also looked at a lot of different kinds of technologies to apply to this relative navigation sensor, and we wanted to, to make sure we were um, looking at all the current technology and even the advanced 
technology elements are available uh, in industry today to kind of support this particular application. And what we need to do for at least Orion in the Orion program, we had to de develop multiple capabilities for, to support lots of different types of missions. So not only low, or low Earth orbit missions, but also um, other missions to maybe Moon, Mars, and beyond. So those were kinds of things that we had, uh, obviously, in our Orion program requirements. But also, we wanted to make sure we found a technology that was robust, reliable, and safe. And those are all things that, that were combined together, not only trying to make sure we had uh, supported the missions we need to do, but also provided a capability that could support those missions and what was lightweight and had low power. And we're going to have a few uh, individuals come up and talk a little about technology, but I wanted to make sure you guys were aware that's that's kind of where the, the driver is for where Storm came from. And if you're not familiar, I guess I've been talking Storm a little bit, but a sensor test for Orion relative navigation risk mitigation. It's a mouthful, so we try to use Storm a lot, and you'll hear a lot of people say Storm. Uh, so I, I hope uh, that's okay because I don't want to have to repeat that one more time. I might mess it up. But... Uh, um, I want to make sure also to point out that as part of our um, activities here, we're going to be able to uh, utilize two uh, human spaceflight programs besides Orion that you see on my uh, left here. Uh, the space shuttle program provided us a vehicle for us to be able to uh, mount our sensor and be able to uh, utilize that particular vehicle to go to a relevant space environment, in this case, International Space Station. That would really prove out and really show the capabilities of what we need to do for for this uh, relative navigation sensor technology. And, and Heather Hinkle, who's the principal investigator for this activity, will, will talk a little bit about mission right after me. Uh, but it's been my pleasure. Thank you. I, I hope I provide you a little bit of overview of what we're trying to do with STORM and what the capabilities uh, that the STORM will have will be described uh, by the individuals on the team in the, in the, in the following uh, short briefings that we're going to have. And I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. And with that, Heather Hinkle, our principal investigator for NASA Johnson Space. Good afternoon. Um, I'm going to probably step over the table because I want to point out some things. Should I set the microphone down or? Let's walk around it. Okay, so as I said, I'm the principal investigator. So we identified this technology we wanted to go fly. So we had to go determine what can the shuttle do, what do we, objectives do we want to meet so that we can go and advance this technology and have it ready for Orion when Orion goes to fly to the space station. So we, uh, Ball Aerospace, built the two sensors, and we designed an enclosure to put them in. And to give an idea about advancing the technology, this whole box is the size of today's laser sensor that the shuttle flies for docking. And you can see inside of it, we have the VNS laser sensor and the docking camera and a lot of space around it. So you can see the size has significantly gotten smaller, as has the weight and power. Um, the other nice thing about this is it's mounted in the shuttle right next to the shuttle laser sensor. We'll use data from the shuttle laser sensor as a truth measurement to compare the VNS performance when we get back from the flight. So in order to meet some of our objectives, there were a couple of pre-work that was done. One was which we mounted some extra reflective elements onto the space station. These flew up on STS-131. And this is the docking target, just like the one that's up on the space station docking port. The crew uses this standoff cross to align with these markings in the background to align themselves for docking. And you can see how that cross looks, depending on what your attitude is. They know how they have to align themselves to dock. So what these reflectors do 
the, the laser, which is firing 30 times a second, is reflecting back in a very high um, intensity return from these, and it can now calculate that six degree of freedom. And it can give that information to a crew, or that information can be fed into a nav system and be used to automatically dock a vehicle. So this is gonna be a great chance to prove it out. Uh, the little piece of glass you see on the front filters out the wavelength so that there's no interference with the shuttle laser. They're essentially blind to these extra reflectors we put up. So um, one other unique thing that's happening on this mission, uh, we're gonna be collecting data through the whole rendezvous phase and docking. Post-flight, we're gonna reproduce that trajectory in a, in a test facility and go, go ahead and validate the facility and look at the performance in space compared to on the ground. Another thing that we're doing is the shuttle trajectory is significantly different than the planned Orion trajectory. So we really wanted to collect this data and prove our primary objectives, which is the very long range of extending this from any current laser technologies by more than double out to five kilometers. But we wanted that same look angle, we wanted the same relative velocity as we'd see for Orion. So after they undock and fly around, they're coming back. They're gonna go away and come back on exactly the Orion trajectory. So we're really gonna prove out this technology, advance its level and readiness, and reduce that risk for Orion when it does its rendezvous and docking. We'll continue to track all the way through five kilometers separating. So this is a great opportunity. We're gonna have camera data through that whole thing, evaluating it for piloting cues, and uh, we're gonna have a, a great leap ahead for Orion. Uh, so I'm gonna turn it to Frank Novak. He's our project manager for STORM, and he's gonna talk about the data we're gonna collect. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Frank Novak with NASA Landing. Uh, we're going to be collecting a huge amount of data during the mission. Um, as Heather said, we're taking 30 frames a second. That's huge. And to collect all this data, we had to create a new data acquisition system to actually collect a half a terabyte, one for half a terabyte for the VNS and a half a terabyte for the docking camera. So one terabyte uh, total. Now, if we're buying uh, data storage, we could probably go to Best Buy and buy a terabyte for 100 bucks. Well, this is space rated, so we had to get rad tolerant, whole new level uh, technology. But when we collect the data, we're going to send a small sample of that data to the astronauts, to the PGSC inside the crew cabin, so they can monitor real time what's happening with the uh, mission. And also from that, we're going to get slow scan videos, which are going to be piped on to the team in the mission control, so we can do some real time assessments as far as are the temperatures looking good? Are the images coming clear? Is there something that we can ask the astronaut crew to uh, tweak or uh, change? So it gives us a lot of capability here. Uh, we're going to collect data for the uh, dock, which is on flight day three, and undock and rendezvous on uh, flight day 13. And then after the mission, we're going to come down here back to um, the OPF. We're going to do an IVT, inter vehicle test. We're going to test. Uh, the instruments one more time before we deintegrate, then we're going to start pulling off all the data. It's going to take us roughly 11 days to pull off the whole terabyte of data. We'll post-process the data daily, and we'll be passing it down to the autonomous rendezvous and docking team for their uh, assessment. Okay. Howard? Uh, so next up, uh, representing Lockheed Martin will be Rob Chambers. Uh, he's responsible for and uh, representing the avionics, flight software, and GNC team. So Rob's going to talk about a little bit about uh, how we're going to utilize the data that we get from Storm. Thanks, Howard. Yeah, as Frank talked, we're going to get a terabyte of data, which is a lot of ones and zeros. So we want to talk a little bit about how we're going to use that data. 
Um, with the, uh, the legacy human spaceflight, of course, is based on that philosophy of test like you fly and fly like you test. And so the getting the opportunity on STS-134 for a complete circumnav around the station so that we can observe it at the wavelength we're interested in, and then coming up on that trajectory approach, which is consistent with our exo-leo uh, lunar kind of uh, orbital mechanics that we're going to be dealing with with Orion, gives us a true unprecedented view uh, with this kind of technology of on-orbit performance. So what we're going to use that for is to validate um, an extensive facility that we have up in Denver working both with our Lockheed, uh, our Ballistic contractors, and with our NASA customer to uh, do a series of uh, corners of the envelope testing. So all attitudes will be approaching docking, whether to a space station, to another Orion vehicle, uh, to an asteroid for uh, collision avoidance. So we're going to use the data that we get from the ISS mission for twofold first so that we understand what the space station environment looks like, what kind of reflections we'll get, other than from the dedicated reflections we expect to see from the retroreflectors, or the reflective elements, I should say, uh, as well as anything else we might get from other aberration uh, reflections. So that'll help us to validate the algorithms we'll use for the first time docking uh, up to space station from any proof of concept we do for Orion. The second is to then validate the on-orbit performance of the sensor. You'll notice here, this is our Space Operations Simulation Center. It's a 200 foot by 50 foot by 50 foot test facility, full scale. We did the validation testing with the uh, units prior to coming down here to the Cape. And when we get back, we'll take the sensor back up, look at post-flight performance, and be able to calibrate and validate all that against the on-orbit. That'll then ground all of the simulations and full scale integrated testing we perform against real space flight. That will then also allow us to leapfrog forward to the other applications for the VNS and the docking camera for ever increasing complex missions beyond low Earth orbit that's part of Orion's uh, forward plans. Okay, thanks, Art. Thank you, Robert. Uh, next will be Jeanette Domber. She's going to talk a little about technology. She's representing all aerospace. Um, thanks, Howard. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the cross-cutting technology in our sensor suite. Um, here you see a replica of the sensor box that is currently installed on Endeavour. It hold, holds two instruments, um, the VNS, the Vision Navigation Sensor, which is a flash LiDAR system that provides us with range data and a 3D image of what we're looking at. Um, the range of this sensor operates from a little over three miles out to within five feet. Currently, the shuttle uses three different sensor systems to operate over this range. Um, it does house an iSafe laser, and it doesn't have any moving parts, which gives it high, re high reliability. Um, it's also built upon previous generations of test systems that we've developed at Ball, but this is our first opportunity to go ahead and fly one of these flash LiDAR systems in space, so we're very excited about that. Um, the second sensor is the docking camera. The docking camera has 16 times higher resolution than the current camera systems available on the shuttle, and it's also built um, almost entirely out of off-the-shelf components. Uh, thank you, Jeanette. Uh, now uh, we're ready to take some questions. We have several of the team members, so um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to cover all your questions today. Uh, is there any questions? Gene McCulloch at Talking Space. Um, how close will the shuttle go ahead and mimic the Orion trajectory? Because I know that, you know, obviously the shuttle is a lot bigger and a lot heavier than the Orion, so um, how accurate will be the, uh, the, the numbers as opposed to... So the trajectory, it, it will follow the same exact trajectory with the same um, height, delta height offset from the station 
orbit. Now the burn, like the terminal phase initiation burn, the size of that burn will be slightly different because the Orion vehicle's mass properties and, and jets are slightly different. So the burn itself will be different, but the trajectory it puts it on is the same as the Orion one. Storm does represent a leap in technology, and it will be interesting to see if Storm does perform as predicted. Stay tuned. Another event that I was able to attend occurred within the walls of NASA's Media Center. Mallory Jennings and Heather Paul, technical development engineers at NASA's Johnson Space Flight Center, presented a demonstration of NASA's Extravehicular Mobility Unit, or EMU for short, better known to us as, well, a spacesuit. Both Ms. Jennings and Ms. Paul discussed the current EMU and what's on the horizon for future spacesuit designs. After the presentation, I had a chance to talk with Heather Paul about the EMU's features and what may be coming for future spacesuit development. This is Gene McCulka with the Talking Space Podcast, and I'm here with... Heather Paul. And you are with what office? Uh, Johnson Space Center, and I'm a project engineer with Advanced Spacesuit Life Support Design. Wonderful. Now, we have a, uh, I wish this was a uh, video here, but we have a uh, spacesuit mock-up. This is definitely a mock-up, correct? Absolutely. Now, parts of it have been used in our training program, and it's possible that other parts have flown in space as well, but all of the parts that you see here have been downgraded so that we could have it for you to see today. So could you describe just a little bit about how, you know, one would go ahead and put this on or, or what the different layers are and so on? Absolutely. Our spacesuit, the U.S. version of the spacesuit versus the Russian, it's very different. Um, but ours is very modular. So first of all, we size it to fit the crew member. We can fit 5th to 95th percentile, males and females. So a large part of the population, in fact. And so this is sort of like a one-size-fits-all type thing, correct? Um, in the traditional sense, yes, but we don't have one suit that fits everyone. We can size it to fit almost everyone. And it does have various pieces. You've got the helmet, and it connects at the neck ring. So that does actually come off, and that's a visor assembly with your regular visor and then a set of external visors that will act as both your spacesuit sunglasses and then the pull-down visors that black out the sun. Right. So this configuration here, we've got the gold visor down. This would obviously be the sunglasses version. Correct, yes. And if there's even still too much glare, is there anything we can do to go ahead and correct that? You would pull down the pull-down tabs at the top of the helmet that are on the right, left, and the center, and they're independent visors. And so the astronaut can control to what extent if there's any glare in his or her eyes. Okay. Now, typically on Earth, how much would something like this, this whole system weigh? On Earth, the whole system fully loaded with all of your life support consumables is approximately 300 pounds. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot, but when you're considering that this suit was designed for the microgravity environment, that amount of weight isn't that important because of the lack of gravity, but you're still having to manage all of that mass. Okay. Now, I've noticed, too, uh, maybe you can answer this question for me. I've noticed when I'm watching EV EVAs on NASA television, uh, there, the crew is asked to do a, do a glove check every so yes. often. Now, why is, that, why is that needed? Well, the gloves are really important. They, um, when you're on an EVA, your hands are acting as both your hands and your feet, so that's how you move around, and that's also how you do your maintenance and construction tasks and any of the science and research that we're doing outside. So the gloves are really an incredibly important part of this because you don't want to cut your glove and then um, have a problem with pressure or any leaking in the spacesuit. So what we do is we have the astronauts check their gloves frequently throughout the EVA. Every piece of hardware that we send up has been inspected ext extemporaneously for, you know, making sure that there's no um, 
no pinch points or sharp edges, but things happen in space on occasion, and so checking the gloves throughout the EVA ensures that the astronauts are okay and their, their gloves are doing, doing what they need to do with no uh, pressure integrity issues. The backpack here, what, yes. what's contained in there? That is the life support system, okay. and so that has all of your primary oxygen within it, your water tank for your cooling water, your battery and your communications, and then we also have the secondary oxygen pack that is your backup system in case you do get a leak in the suit, you have high-pressure oxygen that will provide you enough life support for about 30 minutes. Okay. Now, obviously, if you're sitting in here, it would get pretty hot. How does, how does a crew member stay cool in here? So the crew member wears the liquid cooling and ventilation garment. It's a special undergarment that you wear over your own personal undergarments. Okay. And it's uh, very flexible, um, and it has plastic water tubing, plastic tubing running through it with water. And um, the temperature of the water running through the liquid cooling garment can be controlled by this front dial on the front of the spacesuit, the temperature control valve. And you can see it goes from H0 to 10 to C. We don't have hot water in the spacesuit. We only have cold. Right. But if you turn the dial to full hot, what that does is shuts off the valve to the life support system. You can bypass that water tank that has cold water in it. And you can use your own body heat to slowly heat up the water running through your garments. Okay, now I've noticed that the numbers here and the, uh, the lettering here is uh, written in backward. Why is that? Well, the front of the spacesuit, you can only see really to the top edge of this display and control module. And because it's all connected together, when you bend at the hips, everything bends with you. So you can't see the front of the spacesuit. But this is prime real estate for the controls of the spacesuit right. because it's within the reach envelope of the, of the gloved hand. So when we designed this system, we realized that this is such great real estate, but they can't see it. What are we going to do about that? So we write the writing backwards, and then we have a wrist mirror that they wear on one or both um, outside the gloves, and they look at the reflection and then can use the front of that display. Okay. Now, getting back to the life support system, that sure. can be recharged during an EVA at any time, correct? It, uh, not during the EVA, necessarily. Um, we load it up with however many, however many hours of consumables we need. Typically, we fill it up, full gas tank, so about eight-hour duration. The EVAs that we have on STS-134 are only going to go about six to six and a half hours. Okay. But when they come inside the airlock, what they do is they pull down this flap, and you attach the service and cooling umbilical here, and it recharges your life support system for the next EVA. Okay, just, just for the record, should, um, a, a flap on the uh, front here has been pulled down, revealing a control center here. So I just want to go ahead and give the listeners a, a good, good understanding of where we're at. Sure, absolutely. Um, now, what kind of issues have you heard from the astronauts with this particular suit? Because I, I know I've talked to a couple of them. They're saying that they've got some shoulder issues, and they've had some. You know, one of them has been saying that he's, he's been bruised a little bit. Um, are you, do you got, are you folks doing anything to correct uh, the, problem, the problem with the suit? And again, going back to the gloves, have you looked at uh, the understanding, standable that uh, you need you still need to do a glove check here? But can you go ahead and develop something that ne won't necessarily need that? Absolutely. Every time we do any kind of a training run or any time we do EVAs, we're always learning lessons about how we can make our hardware more durable more natural for mobility for the human being inside of it. And um, so we're constantly upgrading, refurbishing, trying to figure out how to make things better, and especially for next generation spacesuit design. This particular suit, it works really well for the conditions it was designed for, but of course every crew member is different and we do our best to size the suit to fit that person, but we have had some um, 
some indication that they could have shoulder injuries sometimes in our underwater training facility as well as in space. So the hard upper torso that's underneath, that's the keystone of this entire assembly, it's a fiberglass shell and we only have a couple of sizes of those. So obviously um, if it doesn't fit you as well, <laughs> then you might have a few pinch points or impingements on the shoulder. We do a lot to train our crew members to try to avoid that and then we have padding that we can put in there to try to make it as comfortable as possible. So really, we don't want to have that happen, obviously, on orbit. And because we do so much training, we try to figure that out early so that when they're doing their EVAs in space, they don't have any issues at all. With the gloves, those have gone through several design iterations. So what you see here, this is an older style glove. I'm not even sure what phase this is in particular. Um, but we've gone through several design iterations with the gloves because, as we've learned from training in our EVA spacewalks, we figured out ways to make these much more mobile, durable, and much more comfortable so you can have that tactility as you're holding on to equipment and moving yourself around the space station. So these are in constant constant design processing and revision, and this is definitely one of the areas that we're really focusing on for future generation spacesuits. Now, how many layers is, is the garment here itself? The, the here. It varies depending on where you are on the spacesuit. For the elbows and knees where you need some more flexibility and stuff, you'll have a, a little bit of smaller number of layers. But overall what we have is the inside pressure layer, then a Dacron restraint layer, then a neoprene layer, okay, then wow. five to seven layers of aluminized mylar, and then your outer fabric, which is the ortho fabric. Wow, that's a lot. Now you were talking too about the next generation spacesuit a little bit. Yes. Um, what... What's on, on tap now? Obviously, um, oh, one more question too with reference to this though. Sure. Um, the longevity of a suit like this, uh, how long would you go ahead and keep it in service? Well, this suit was designed for a 15-year life or 25 EVAs, mm -hmm. but of course we've uh, extended well beyond that with yeah. several of our suits. And keep in mind, as we bring a suit back, then we will take it apart, inspect it, and then refurbish those pieces for a future flight. So all of this equipment has been, you know, used in various forms and fashions over the many years. But looking at future suit design, where you might be living on the surface of the moon, Mars, someplace else for much longer than 14 days or so, right. we're trying to create our hardware so that it can sustain 100 EVAs. Wow. So four times the lifespan that we originally created this suit for. And if you consider if an average EVA is eight hours, that's 800 hours of useful life. And of course, you want your factor of safety in there, yes, definitely. which is two and a half. So you guys can do the math to figure out <laughs> how many hours of just pure usage time we're trying to beef this equipment up for. Kids, there's your homework assignment. <laughs> uh, I've heard on a couple of EVAs that you know the reason why I went back to the life support system is I've heard a couple of couple of times where a crew member will go back in and try to recharge the suit or they've been requested to recharge the suit. Yes. What exactly are they doing? On occasion they'll need to do that if we still have a lot of tasks to be done and uh, perhaps they've gotten a little too excited on their EVA <laughs> and you know either started uh, blowing down their oxygen a little too quickly or if they're having any kind of battery issues or anything like that. Um, it's not it's not something that we necessarily like to do because it takes time away from the tasks at hand, but they right. can recharge if necessary. Okay. Um, now, how long would it take for one individual to get into this particular suit? Um, if you're talking about everything from making sure you're ready for your EVA that right. day, it takes about an hour and a half or so, okay. and that includes 
putting on the equipment and then doing all of the checkouts to make sure your oxygen is flowing, which that's pretty important, making sure that your suit seals are correctly um, together so that you don't have any leakage points and everything is working from your life support system. So about an hour and a half. Now, if you take into account the pre-breathe time that we've had to do to prepare for their EVAs, they camp out overnight in the airlock for that. But we're actually trying a new pre-breathe protocol on STS-134, in-suit light exercise. And we're pretty excited about it because what it's going to allow our crew members to do is not have to separate themselves out from their buddies and sleep in the airlock all night long. They're going to go in early in the morning or early in the day before their EVA get into their spacesuits and do some essentially marching in place for about 50 minutes and uh, breathing pure oxygen. And we think that's going to help to um, get their heart rate up, increase their metabolism, and burn off any nitrogen they have in their tissues as they're breathing 100% pure oxygen. Yeah, and again, too, I understand understand that uh, the reason for this this new procedure is uh, if you have uh, an alert that go off on the station, it basically, you know, all bets are off in the airlock, basically, correct? That is part of it. Uh, The other thing is thinking about the vehicle consumables. Mm -hmm. We have to use up a lot of the oxygen when we do those pre-breathe protocols where they camp out in the airlock and then they're breathing off the oxygen masks for a couple of hours while they're preparing. Mm -hmm. So it's also for consumables. We want to uh, keep as much oxygen on station as we can so that we don't have to create more of it or bring more up. (laughs) Do you see an a next generation station suit coming down the pike or will you basically stay with this design static all through the uh, space station program? I think inevitably as technology evolves we will be updating our spacesuit technologies as well. I believe there are some plans to do a detailed test objective in, in the future where we send up some of our new technologies for spacesuit design and test them out. So we'll have to stay tuned and see, see how things progress. We hope, hope, hope the next suit we're designing it for a trip to, the, to Mars or the moon, I hope. Yes, me too. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Thanks, sure. thanks a whole bunch. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. As part of what NASA called the Now and Future Tour, we got a chance to visit Orbiter Processing Facility Number 2. This is usually Endeavor's home. However, Space Shuttle Discovery now sits inside. Having flown for the last time in her retirement home, the Udvar Hazy Center of the Smithsonian Institute already announced, Discovery is being prepared not for another reach into the heavens, but for display. While standing underneath Discovery, her heat-resistant tile still sullied from her last re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, we had a chance to visit with Stephanie Stilson, Discovery's flow director for the past 11 years, on how OV-103 would be prepared for her new home. Here's how the conversation went. Hi, hello, welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm going to talk a little bit. Well, I have to stop and say, in case you didn't know, you're standing underneath Discovery. So everybody, look up. Okay, because sometimes I make a mistake and I forget to tell people they're doing that. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing now that Discovery's had her final flight. Um, right now, we're processing Discovery for transition and retirement. So instead of processing to get ready to go to the launch pad and launch and go into space, we're the vehicle to be ready for display. Obviously, there's a lot of hazards on every orbiter, and we're in a controlled facility. The people that deal with this, this orbiter and those hazards on a daily basis are especially trained, but when we take Discovery to the Smithsonian, we're not going to have that capability. So we're going to have to make sure that everything is safe for the general public to walk up close near Discovery at the, at the museum itself. So what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of fluids and things that have to come off the ship. Hydrazines. Um, we have hypergol. 
we have ammonia, we have freon, or pyrotechnics. Those kind of things all have to be saved or removed from the ship. So that's the process we're going through. So far in the process of discovery, um, since we've been on the ground for the past couple months, coming up on two months, um, basically we've been doing what we call down mission processing. That is a standard process we go through with every vehicle, even if it was going to fly again. We would go through this process. Basically it's the initial saving of the vehicle, gaining access, allowing us to remove payload components. We also remove the, the main engines. Those get processed in a separate facility. And so we've done all of that so far. In addition, the things that we've done already that aren't normal is we have removed the orbital maneuvering system pods from half of the vehicle behind me, as well as the core reaction control system off the nose. The reason for removing those modules is we then send them to our hyperdog maintenance facility, another separate facility, where they can be decommissioned. So it'll go through draining of those um, hyperdolls and so forth, removing lines, removing soft goods, gaskets, O-rings, those kind of things. Anything that is contaminated has to be cleaned or removed. So we're going through that process. The reason we do it in another facility, first of all, we don't have the capability to do it in the order processing facility. Secondly, it allows us to continue working here. Doing that activity is hazardous. You have to clear the area. Very few people are allowed to be in that area at the time. So we can continue processing here. Pyrotechnics are being removed. Um, changing out windows and so forth. So talk about safety. The other aspect that we're getting into now, now that we're coming to the end of down mission processing, is, is also the display preparations. So not only do we need to make it safe for the public, but we also need to get it in the configuration that, in the case of Discovery, Smithsonian wants it to be in. So there's certain components that are going to be taken off the vehicle, put back on the vehicle, reconfigured, and so forth. Um, for example, um, the, the waste system, the potty that we know of, we take that off every flight, it gets cleaned separately, sent back to Houston, and then comes back to us. Well, does the display site want us to put it back in the ship, or do they want us to keep it out so that the general public can walk right up and see it? Same with the galley, right? Would you like to have it so that the public can see how the crew cook their meals? So it's up to the display site how they really want this vehicle to be prepared. Smithsonian, they're in my, very much about preservation. They want to keep this as flight-like as possible. So I'm guessing in most cases we'll be putting all those components back in as opposed to leaving them out separate, but we're still having those discussions. Another thing that we're tackling right now is engineering from a NASA whole, the whole agency, all of our engineering communities, have gone through the list of shuttle hardware and decided, are there any components that we need to keep that maybe we'll use on a future program? Or maybe we just want to do more investigation, science, those kind of things. What can we learn from those, those components? So we're going in and removing some of those things. Windows are a good example for that. We're pulling off some of the windows, letting them go, continue to do the studies of what happens when those micrometeoroids hit, hit glass in space. What are we learning so future vehicles can have even better windows on their vehicles as well. So a lot of different things happening right now. Um, a lot of work happening, not right now, because we're only working one shift a day, so most of the folks are gone for the day now, um, but we are very busy with discovery. We will spend um, about, total of about 11 months getting discovery ready to ferry to Smithsonian. So that's the activity we're going to. So February time frame is what we're looking at for when we'll be ready to ferry. And ferry, when I say ferry, that's where we put her on top of the 747, the shuttle carrier aircraft, and then we're able to fly cross country and then unload. That's that's okay, questions so far? Are these the tires you landed with? The these are not. These are what we call roll around tires. They're, they're old tires um, we, because when we move the vehicle, we'll move it on the tires. Um, they have been used before, but they're not the actual flight tires that, that They could very well have flown. I don't know the pedigree of these. Just that they're good enough for us to roll around on. So, yeah. Yeah. Has a 
Smithsonian been in contact with you as far as their requirements are concerned? Yes. What we did is we came up with a generic, what we call a baseline configuration that we gave to each of the display sites now that we know who those display sites are. And so we actually had a kickoff meeting last week with all the display site representatives and talked through that. So they're off looking at that list, seeing how they want to change it, um, coming up with their special request based on that. Thank you. Before we end the show, I'd like to go ahead and thank everyone who took the time to talk to us while we were over at the Kennedy Space Center, both NASA contractors and NASA civil servants alike. They were showcasing for us what they do on a daily basis to support our nation's space program, and we were all too happy to go ahead, absorb it, and send it over to you. I'd also like to go ahead and thank my colleague, Mark Raderman, who gave me a lot of latitude during our time over at Kennedy Space Center. He's a true gentleman. And I'm just reflecting, too, at the time that we spent down there. It was loaded with a lot of long hours, missed meals, lost sleep, and dealing with some very interesting weather, lightning warnings, and one I think at one part hail. But, you know... I wouldn't have missed it for anything because we did see some very, very extraordinary things, and I hope I brought that flavor to you this evening. So once more, thank you again for listening, and as a colleague of mine is also often heard saying, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it is where you are.